This is Rumble Strip. America Heilman. Happy New Year. It's really cold here, but that's okay. I'm feeling pretty good. And today it's up to 21 degrees already, and it's only 9.13 in the morning. I'm working on a couple big shows right now that are taking longer than usual to produce. Uh, I'm going to keep my head down and keep working on them. And in the meantime, I wanted to play one of my favorite Scott Carrier stories, which is actually his very first story. He made it when he was 26. And before the show starts, he will explain how he came to make the show back in earlier times in public radio. Here's Scott Carrier. 34 years ago, when I was 26 years old, I woke up next to a two-lane highway running across the Navajo Reservation in northern Arizona. Sagebrush, rabbit bush, no traffic. I had my things in a backpack, and I was hitchhiking across the country, interviewing people who picked me up, hoping to use the interviews for a radio story I'd produce at National Public Radio in Washington, D.C. once I got there. I'd sent them a letter telling them I was coming. Across the road, there were two big mounds of red sandstone rising up out of the desert floor like whales surfacing at sea. And they seemed to be humming or producing static, a buzz or something was in the air, and it was coming from the smooth, hump-like mounds. I'd heard stories about the Indian reservation, how there are ghosts and spirits flying around, and I got scared. Suddenly felt like I had no idea what I was doing. My life was a mess. I'd been married, and that was a mistake, and it was my fault. I was unemployed, nearly broke. I didn't really know anybody at NPR. I'd address the letter to whom it may concern. Why did I think this could work? Why was I standing there in the middle of nowhere with a tape recorder and microphone in my backpack? I felt like a fool and then I was going to disappear, and nobody would know I was gone. But then that feeling passed. It was a wave of despair, and it went away, because I actually did know what I was doing. I'd studied cultural anthropology and documentary film in college, and I wanted to combine the two. I wanted to make ethnographic films. I'd been to film school and dropped out of film school because I realized film was too expensive, a camera and a lens at that time cost $50,000, and I couldn't even afford the film. But radio, on the other hand, was cheap. A tape recorder and microphone cost only about $500, and National Public Radio had been playing stories that, to me, were like film documentaries. National Public Radio back then was trying to find new ways of telling stories on the radio, and a lot of the stories I heard felt like movies I'd seen and studied in college, only without the visuals. That part happened in my imagination. I listened to the radio and saw the places and people in my mind, especially when I listened to stories by two women in California who called themselves the Kitchen Sisters. Like, for instance, they went to a Tupperware convention or the Bing Crosby golf tournament in Monterey, and then they produced stories that were like cinema verite films. No narration, just people talking, and the stories told themselves. Listening to them, I felt like I was there, which is what happened to me when I watched the documentary films of Richard Leacock, 
D.A. Pennebaker and the Maisel Brothers. So that was my plan. Make cinema verite movies on the radio like the Kitchen Sisters. And I thought if I had a collection of interviews while hitchhiking across the country, that would be a good way to do it. The rock seemed to agree with me. The humming, the buzz in the air was now full of encouragement. I saw it as a sign that I was on the right path and everything would unfold accordingly. I dug my feet into the ground, grinding them back and forth. A pickup truck came down the highway and I jumped in the back. Two weeks later, on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, I walked into the lobby of the NPR building in Washington, D.C. with a stuffed sack of cassette tapes, like trout I'd caught in the stream. The security guard said, you can't go up there, meaning I couldn't go up to the third floor where the people were working. I said, I sent them a letter. They know I'm coming. He said, no way. I said, maybe call them on the phone and ask. He said, nope, I can't do that. I said, maybe you can. It'll just take a minute. If they say no, I'll go away. So he did it. He picked up the phone, and the buzzing came back. The sound of the sandstone whales filled the lobby of 2025 M Street, and it got louder and louder and louder. Then he put the phone down and said, okay, you can go up. I walked in, and Alex Chadwick and Bill Abbott were sitting at a big table outside the main studio where the show was broadcast every day at 5 o'clock. Alex said he was the producer of the show, and Bill was the director. I said, did you get my letter? And they were like, what? Letter? I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it until about 10 years later when Alex told me the phone rang just as he and Bill and the staff of the show had finished their morning meeting, the morning meeting where they decide what to play on the show that day. He and Bill were there kicking back, joking around, and thought it would be fun to have me come up and see how weird I was and then make me go away. That may sound callous, but at least he gave me a chance. Alex said to me, Look, we've only got a couple of minutes before we need to get back to work. Why don't you tell us what you have in mind? I emptied the sack of cassette tapes on the table and said, These are interviews with people who picked me up hitchhiking across the country, and I want to make a cinema verite type story like the Kitchen Sisters, without narration. Alex said, Well, I'm the person who puts the Kitchen Sisters stories on the air, and they're actually very good at what they do. Do you have any experience producing radio stories? No, I said, but I think this will work. He said, the first thing you need to do, before we even talk about it, is play some of your tape for one of our engineers. We have very good audio engineers here, highly trained, unionized, and they may not like somebody walking in off the street with $500 of recording equipment. So you go into that room over there and play some of the tape for the engineer, and he'll say whether it's up to NPR standards or not. So I went in and played some of my tape for the engineer, and it was actually really bad tape in terms of the audio quality, scratchy, low volume. 
but it just so happened that the engineer had been up all night drinking and breaking up with his girlfriend, and he was an emotional wreck, and my tape made him cry. He walked out and told Alex my tape was really good. He wasn't going to say it couldn't be played on the air. So Alex asked me, can you write? I said, I didn't want to write anything, that I thought the interviews could be played without narration. And he said, this isn't a story like that. It won't work to play a bunch of interviews of people in cars without any context or explanation. The listeners won't know what it means. This is your story, and you need to tell it. So I'm asking you, have you ever written anything? Just in school, I said. Papers for grades. Nothing, really. Well, he said, go write a script and come back in two days, and we'll see if it's good enough to put on the air. I wrote the narration on a typewriter in the Georgetown University Library, using whiteout, and I slept in a broom closet of the student union building. Two days later, I showed up in Alex's office with the script, but he wasn't there. So I left it on his desk and walked out onto the street, feeling like I'd fallen into a deep, dark hole, like I had no chance at all. I wandered a couple miles southeast to the Gospel Mission, where I could sleep in a bed and take a shower with the homeless men of our nation's capital. There was a lot of snoring, a lot of coughing, no humming or buzzing of the rocks, just sitting and waiting for the guillotine to drop. A couple days later, I summoned my courage and called Alex, and he said he'd read the script and that he thought it was very good. He said there's still a lot of work to be done, but that I should come in and he'd show me what to do, how to cut tape and mix and get the thing done which he did. He taught me all those things and more. Like, for instance, the key to radio, the magic to radio, comes down to respecting the audience. Basically, I owe Alex Chadwick my career, along with Ira Glass and Jay Allison and the Kitchen Sisters, Larry Massett and Joe Frank and Keith Talbot, and everybody who was there at NPR at that time trying to find new ways to tell stories on the radio and I was lucky to have walked in at that time, March 1983, because one month later, NPR realized they were $9 million in debt, and they started to fire all the creative people. The door that was open closed tight. That's a long introduction to this story. I tell it because now it's like a fairy tale. Anyway, here's David Malpas, the host of Weekend All Things Considered, 34 years ago this week. Ask five friends, and chances are at least four of them will tell you they've dreamt this dream. Quit the job, pack the bag, hit the road, thumbing a ride toward the horizon with random chance for a compass. Of the four with the dream, maybe one has lived it. However attractive the possibility seems, other possibilities intrude, ties to families and to work, and the sure knowledge there will be days without rides on the road and nights without sanctuary. Still, some of us do go, and what follows is one man's story of such a journey. Scott Carrier is a 26-year-old independent producer who showed up here at NPR a few weeks ago. He brought with him a tape recorder and a bag full of cassettes and recollections.
25 past 7 o'clock right here on Call Radio in Salt Lake City. And once again, it's time to go back. Do get your jack back. Today is February 25th. It's a beautiful morning in Salt Lake City, the town I call home. The air is clean, and the mountains are crisp with new snow. It'd be a good day to go skiing. It'd be a good day to play golf. But it's an even better day to leave town. And I really need to leave. My life here has become especially confusing. My marriage has fallen apart, and I can't seem to finish anything I begin. So I'm leaving. I'm going to walk over to the freeway and start hitchhiking to the East Coast. I'm going to take my tape recorder and microphone and talk to people along the way. So long, Salt Lake. Two o'clock in the morning, two days later, and I'm out on a rocky mesa overlooking a trailer park just outside Page, Arizona. It's windy and cold and clear. The moon is half full and eerie on the desert floor. I feel like I'm on Mars, and the trailer park is some blue-collar space station. I'm here, alone, late at night, doing what? I wish I would have brought my golf clubs. I could hit an 8-iron shot right down on top of the trailer houses. Just before dawn, I hear someone right next to my head say, Hello. I open my eyes and see two feet in white cotton socks, no shoes. There's a teenage kid standing there like he wants to get an early start on the day by making a new friend. He's just been released from the local jail. Uh, Monday night, a couple of buddies went and got pretty wasted. And I... <laughs> I don't know if it was a dare or it is not a drunkenness, but it trespassed into the Empire House. The what? The Empire House. What's that? It's a restaurant over Main Street. You want me to leave town now. They do. Yeah. I ain't gonna go until I get my tennis shoes back. They're holding them for evidence and I got 10 days before I can go get them back. Saturday morning. I've been taking it easy for the past few days in Santa Fe, hanging out in the central plaza on a bench, reading, looking at the sky, and watching people. It's an easy life. Deciding what to eat is the only work I do. A lanky old man with a bald red head sits down next to me on my bench. We talk for a while. He tells me he's an advertising agent here in town and invites me to his new office which is in the cellar of an old house a few blocks away. But anyway, I don't, pay, I don't pay attention to age, and I don't pay attention to time, and I don't pay attention to the seasons, and I don't particularly try to uh, avoid getting all involved in form. That's why those pictures don't have any frames around them. Because the important thing is the picture, not the frame. 
The reason I don't mind being in the basement where I'm now situated is because I don't give a shit what people think. Now, what people think is that Lou has come, I was in Santa Plaza, which is one of the most prestigious offices in all of Santa Fe. Huh. My rent was raised four times in one year. And after a while, while I had a very prestigious office, I was losing money every time I opened the door. Now, if anyone is ignorant enough to come into this basement and say, poor Lou, I feel sorry for him. Because Lou has never been in better shape in his life. And maybe Lou is the only guy who knows that. But you know something? It's enough. It's enough. Texas is a state that almost connects California to Florida. I'm standing on an on-ramp to Interstate 10 on the eastern side of the West Texas town of El Paso. A skinny old guy comes limping up the on-ramp, wearing a new wool sport jacket and a cowboy string tie. What are you doing out here on the road? Well, I was just walking. I'm down here visiting from Portland. I got off and I'm just walking around visiting. I'm a retired government worker. Yeah, how old are you? 63, and I'm a Christian. I'm what they call born again. I've accepted Christ as my personal savior. Do you read your Bible? No. Well, you well, wait a minute, buddy. I asked one guy, can you prove the Bible isn't true? And he said, everything in that Bible is coming to pass. See, I'll tell you, no, there won't be an atomic war until the Battle of Armageddon after the millennium, see. See, the war is going to be in the Middle East. Russia's getting low on oil, see. And that's why they're moving in. Russia's out of oil, uh -huh. see. And the next war is going to be in the Middle East, see. See. And if El Salvador falls, Mexico's next, see. So it isn't the El Salvador troops that's killing. It's all them stinking liberals. We got too many liberals. Reagan is still a liberal Democrat. He's taking orders. Reagan, a liberal Democrat? Buddy, if he's a conservative, I'd hate to see a liberal. Of course, if we give the country to Kennedy, Mondale, and Cranston, he'd give the country to Russia. <laughs> sure. He, you see, the trouble is they're socialistic. This nation is turning socialistic, and it's bad. I'm out in the middle of Texas sitting on my pack by the side of the road. I was walking for about an hour, but I'm tired now, and I'm getting a sunburn. I'm not even sticking out my thumb, and there's a beat-up Fury station wagon stopping right in the middle of the highway to give me a ride. The driver is a dirty-looking guy wearing a black wool mugger's cap. The back of his car is scattered with clothes and trash. I think about telling him no thanks, but the temptation to ride is too great. So I get in, and right away he starts telling me he's going to Florida because his mother's dying there, and there ain't nobody going to stop him. He starts crying. Pulls out a pint of whiskey, kills it, and gives me the bottle to throw out my window because his has a piece of plexiglass cocked into place. He stops in the first town we come to. I go into a 7-Eleven, 
buy a six-pack of beer and tell him he can have it if he lets me drive. He agrees, sinks into the passenger seat, starts on the six-pack and a 300-mile monologue about Haight-Ashbury in the middle 60s. Free love, Owsley acid, Janis Joplin riding down the street on the back of a Hells Angels motorcycle, Jimi Hendrix shooting heroin backstage at some theater everyone used to play at. Somewhere before San Antonio, the sun goes down behind us, and I think, this guy is a 1960s model, just like his car, and neither one of them are making it very well into the 1980s. Maybe if I'm by myself down in Florida or something, Louisiana, I can really work things out. But it just seems to me like, like you know, you, you try like everything, and you're working hard, and, and then something happens. And then you go back down. It's like up and down to me. Never gonna get nowhere like that. What do you think about the about the United States? Things doing all right? Well, economy-wise, there's a lot of phony stuff going on in Washington. I mean, I I didn't ask anyone to send a space shuttle thing up there, you know. And then here I. I seen TV the other day, they built this big dish in Puerto Rico, the United States, and they're sending out signals out to space. They spent, it was, I don't know how many millions it was to build this thing, and that's tax money, you know, and that's stupidity. But how, how many, how much taxes do you pay? You don't pay that much tax. Well, when I work, they take a hunk out. interstate truck stops that sells anything from diesel fuel to women. Anywhere in the country, everything would be the same. The same trucker food, the same trucker music, the same truckers talking the same trucker talk. This is the interstate subculture, where hitchhikers have about as much prestige as dogs in China. I'm going to be at this truck stop all night, but so are a lot of other people, like my waitress. By about four in the morning, the place is quiet and she sits down with me on her break to talk. She was hitchhiking too, she says, but ran out of money when she got here. Part of me says, settle down, you know, make your home, make your base. But I was doing that, you know, and it wasn't working. I needed a different perspective on that, you know. The house I lived in was on a community farm. Right? Yeah. I was living with a man. I had known his kids, but they were with his mother. The kids did come back. I got pregnant about the time they came back. Immediately got an abortion. So I turned down the child and myself, and yet I still wanted to see if I could work it out with these other three children. 
living with them. I got kind of lost in it all, kind of got real low, real down. At times, thinking of suicide, almost acting it out. I knew that I needed to be happy again, you know. But for me, for me, it meant living somewhere else. So I just I wanted to go. I don't think you can ever get over an abortion. It's there, you know. I don't I don't dwell on it much. It's best just to let it go by. I'm in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I don't see anything resembling a mountain or anything pleasant either. The sun's going down and I'm cold. I'm tired of Texas. I'm thinking I'd be grateful just to get out of the state tonight when a guy in a Subaru Brat stops and promises me a ride to wherever I want to go if I just hurry up and get in the car. He's leaving Mount Pleasant for good, he says. He's got a terminally ill wife and a stack of medical bills at home he doesn't want to look at anymore. There's, there's no sense in no man killing himself, worrying about a family or something, and putting himself in there. Why do you think more men have heart attacks if they are young age than women? I don't know. Why? They worried themselves to death trying to take care of the damn women and the kids. They've worked themselves to death. That's why you left. That's why I'm hooking it. <laughs> I'm more happy. You don't. You don't realize, you don't know me. I'm more happy right now, you and I driving down this road and I've been in years. <laughs> this is God's truth. I'm more relaxed, I'm not tensed up, I'm not fussed with nobody, I'm just having a ball. <laughs> Use my old lady for example. She expects too much out of me. She dumps everything on me. She don't try and help me make ends meet or nothing. All she does is expect me to do it all. I have to do everything. And there's a limit to what anybody can do. Everybody has a limit. You can push this old body so far and you better stop and think. By God, I'm killing myself. And you will. You'll damn sure do it at an early age. If you push that body, it's like a car. If you don't take care of it, it's going to break down on you. Yeah, it will. You'll wind up with a damn ulcer or, or a heart attack or, or something. Just from worrying, trying to please other people. The hell with them. Please yourself. <laughs> That's why I feel about it now. The hell with them. I ain't going to try and please nobody but me. I drove all night. I drank coffee all night, and I drove all night. Little Rock, Memphis, Nashville, Tennessee. White lines, country music, and coffee. It's seven in the morning, windy and cold, and I'm shaking and jumping around just to stay warm. But I'm having fun. I'm enjoying myself immensely. I want someone to stop and pick me up and let me keep driving. I'm ready to go anywhere. I'll put an ad in the New York Times, driver available, and then my phone number. Hey, somebody stop. Somebody stop and pick me up. One of you guys, Peterbilt, Ford, Dotson, Trailways, bus, stop and pick me up. 
A Monte Carlo's blinkers on, and he's pulling over. There's two big dogs in the back seat, and the driver's a Greek-looking guy listening to an evangelist preacher on his ghetto blast. Don't laugh. He doesn't think it's funny. Sometimes I wish I could just uh, be a, uh, a spokesman. You know, I mean, if I was knowledgeable enough of the Bible, you know, to just go out the country, just travel around. You know, I mean, just be a spokesman, spokesman for Jesus Christ. You know, just like one of his disciples. Have you always lived that way? Oh no, I don't know. <laughs> what were you like before? Oh well, hey, I personally, you know, I've. I've I've been a real um, <coughs> troublemaker all my life. You know, I've I've been I've been incarcerated. I've got about oh maybe 20 years in prison. I was I was the type of child that didn't like to go to school. I was adventuresome, and I wanted to see what was on the other side of the hill because I was excited by money and and uh, the flashy life and everything. You know that. Um, led me to a, to a road of uh, damnation, of just heartaches, you know, not only for me, but my family, too. So uh, I was arrested for different uh, crimes, you know, felonies after I was an adult. And uh, eventually did I even murder the person. Nothing's so. happening. This book is spiritual dynamite. You need to have it. I want to send it to you. In order to get your copy, all you need to do is write to me, Peter St. Patrick's Day. I'm in a bar in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. There's a sad young intern from the hospital sitting next to me. It's harder to care about what happens to people sometimes because you can't, you just get so uh, overwhelmed with it sometimes that you just feel like uh, it's easier not to care. You know, I, I, there's been a couple times this year when, you know, I, I go to the work at the hospital and I see people suffering all the time. And, you know, you just kind of take care of them and do what you have to do. And, you don't even think about it that much, and then you go to, like for me, I'll go to a movie or something, and I'll be more moved watching a movie than I will be by real life, because my defenses are down, you know. I mean, every once in a while, you'll take care of somebody who's just acutely ill and gets better, and that's, that's fun. That, you know, that's, that's satisfying. You see him come in sick and go out well and you know that you did, you played some part in that. that. That's fun, but that's certainly the exception. That's not the rule at all. Well, I'm sure it doesn't affect everybody that way. Some people seem to be able to be optimistic and caring, but I think they're on drugs. Just my professional opinion, please understand. I met a guy a couple of days ago who asked me what I was doing except moving my body from one part of the country to another, and I didn't really know what to tell him. I really don't know what I'm doing. 
There was this young kid down in Tennessee who was going home to Atlanta. <laughs> I'd rather see life as an adventure instead of a routine, not knowing what's around the corner. <laughs> I'm going home on the last $2 now. Um. <laughs> and I remember a woman in New Mexico I wouldn't mind going back to see. Love will come again. And the fact that you have loved and that you have been loved is very, very important, and it's very rich. I'm almost to the East Coast now. I'll get there, look around, and then what? There aren't really any definite endings, no climaxes, morals, or themes in hitchhiking. Nothing is logical. Everything is possible. Well, I made it. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm in the Capitol Rotunda. It's a big room with paintings and statues depicting our country's most important figures and events. Christopher Columbus reasoning with the noble savages, ragged patriots being shot down by rows of redcoats, the founding fathers forging a bill of rights. The crowds of visitors are well behaved. Police guards are polite and on the ball. Congressmen and senators board elevators looking busy and deeply concerned. The restrooms are clean. The soap dispensers are full. I can go home and tell everybody things seem to be just fine in Washington. But I'm not going home. I'm afraid to. I'm afraid I'll fall back into the same hole I was digging myself before I left. I'm just warming up to being on the road. I've come across the country to the East Coast, but I can still go north or south or back west again. It's April. Spring is just beginning, and the good things that come with this time of year can be enough of a home for now. That was Scott Carrier. Scott produces a podcast called Home of the Brave, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank all of the people who have donated to the show. All of that money goes straight to production. It pays for gas. It pays for interview time, for edit time. It affords me time to plan new shows. It actually helped me buy a new recorder a couple months ago when my recorder broke. So I couldn't do the show without your support. And thank you. I'll be back soon with another show. This is Erica Heilman with Rumble Strip. Thanks for listening. <laughs>